But for today, we are in the book of Luke, chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, and we will be reading verses 44 through 56. If you were here with us last week or if you listened online, you would know that um, we really left off from last week in uh, just a very dark and frustrating place, really uh, a cliffhanger of, uh, of a week that we had between last week and this week where uh, we left with Jesus on the cross, uh, Jesus uh, bearing the pain, the scorn, everything we sang about in the song that we sang this morning, uh, Jesus is enduring, and that is where we left him last week, and we will come back to find him there in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56. If you don't have a Bible, it is on the screen. You can follow along there. It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come today to your word, as we see the next phase, the next portion of this um, Lord, honestly, what seems to us to be a, a tragedy in this moment, uh, a tragedy in the sense that we're left at the end of this chapter with a dead Savior. Lord, I pray that as we read your word today and, and read of the, uh, of the occasions and the instances, the events, the people surrounding this moment, Lord, I pray that we would be, um, Lord, just so amazed uh, at how your grace is truly a light in dark places. And in this time, Lord, as we look at your plan of redemption being carried out, Lord, that we would stand in awe of what it is that you have done through Jesus Christ uh, to save wretched sinners like us. Lord, as we study your word, guide us, keep us from error, help us to glorify you in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so my text title today, my sermon title, is Redemption Phase One Complete. Redemption phase one, complete. I really um, think as we read this passage that we see as we come to the close of this passage, it is a, uh, a sort of somber moment. There is sorrow to be had, but certainly for those of us today reading the text, we know that it is not the end, but we know that this is simply phase one. And though we, we end our text today with... Um, 
kind of a deep breath and, and a sense of sorrow. We look forward to what lies ahead in phase two. But I was thinking today of, of this text, uh, as I was thinking about this text that we, that we have before us here today, uh, one thing that I was struck by is the immediacy of the effects of the cross. The effects of the cross are seen absolutely immediately. Is anyone in here uh, familiar with uh, these devices called hot hands? Anyone in here familiar with hot hands? Man, I'm so shocked at how nobody knows what hot hands are because for me, I think they are magic. If you are a hunter or maybe a camper in here, someone who does a lot of hiking, outdoorsy type things, uh, then you might be a little more familiar with what hot hands are. But they are essentially a magic device that you open up out of this package and shake them up and then put them in your pockets and they literally just get hot with no electricity needed, uh, no batteries. They will just get hot and you can put your hands in your pockets and warm up your hands and, and they're awesome. They're absolutely awesome. If you go camping, you can throw them in your sleeping bag and your sleeping bag is nice and toasty. Uh, if you have a hat on, you can throw one in your hat, warm up your head if, if you wanna do that. They're awesome. They're, they're amazing little devices. Uh, that, uh, that I really use a lot and enjoy. But here's the thing about hot hands, is that with hot hands, I have seen so many people do this, so many people who have maybe introduced to hot hands or are not very familiar with how to use them, they take the hot hands out, they open them up, they shake them up, and they're like, well, nothing's happening with my hot hands. They're still cold. Well, I say, well, sure, yeah, you gotta, gotta give them a little bit of time, you gotta let them work, you know, it takes time for them to heat up. And I'll come back and, and see them 10, 15 minutes later, and they've still got this hot hand in their hand. They're going, man, it's still not cold. These things are not working. I think mine are broken or duds. But I'm like, no, no, no. You just, you got to put them in your pockets to get them to work. You got to stick them down in your pockets, like, let the heat kind of build. It, everyone know what I'm talking about who's familiar with hot hands? Yeah, you can't hold them out in the air and just expect them to get hot. Uh, you got to put them in your pockets, let them get warmed up. But if you do all of that, give it a little bit of time, let the chemicals work, they'll get nice and hot, they'll keep your hands warm, they'll serve their, their purpose, they'll they'll do the job. It's not immediate though. You have to give it time. And on a, the, a similar note, after about, I don't know, 10, 12 hours, depending on the, the size hot hand you have, they get cold again. They run out. They have a, a very limited time span. You can't just use them for days and days and days uh, and then keep working. They eventually stop working. Their effects wear off. Uh, they, they no longer uh, serve a purpose. They no longer serve the purpose they were intended. They won't keep your hands or your feet or your head warm any longer. I say this to say that Jesus Christ's work of redemption on the cross is not like hot hands. I'll use that whole analogy just to say, don't think of that. It is the exact opposite. Jesus' work of redemption on the cross, first of all, works immediately. The effects are seen absolutely instantaneous. There is no waiting period. There is no work to be done to make it work. There is no uh, time limit either. That Christ's work of redemption on the cross has not worn off, though we are now thousands of years from the cross. It is not uh, finished. It has not stopped working. There has no need to have a new package opened up and more redemption poured out, but it works instantly, immediately, and it works forever, which is my main idea for my sermon today, and that is that the effects of Jesus' death on the cross are seen immediately and dramatically and will be expanded in the coming days and will last forever. Point number one of our sermon today as we look at this work of redemption, this uh, completion of phase one, as we see in the first few verses, reconciliation and the first signs of a new covenant. 
reconciliation and the first signs of a new covenant. I think I wrote it differently on there. The inauguration of the new covenant. Yes, I thought that was a better word. Uh, The inauguration of the new covenant. In verses 44 through 46, we read this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed. We see here in verse 44 as we start that uh, at this time when Jesus was on the cross, it says that it was the sixth hour, the way the, uh, the calendar was worked in that time. When we read the sixth hour, it means it's the sixth hour from sunup, which usually was around 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour then was 12 noon. So it was the middle of the day, absolutely the, the middle of the day, the peak of, of when the sun is highest in the sky. And we see in the middle of the day at 12 o'clock, everything goes dark. This absolutely supernatural, miraculous event happens where darkness covers uh, this, at least this place. Some scholars would argue it was a darkness that covered the whole earth. Some would say probably just Jerusalem and this surrounding area. But whatever the case, this is absolutely unheard of. That this darkness all of a sudden hits in the middle of the day where our text says that the sun's light failed. If you've ever seen a a solar eclipse, um, we just had one a couple years ago here, and I think another one coming up, um, where we we had a complete solar eclipse where the sun was completely blocked out by the moon. But even in that moment, in this really amazing phenomenon, you could still see quite a bit, right? Though it was darkened, it was not utterly dark, it was not pitch black, the sun had certainly not failed, we still benefited from the sun's light. What we see here in the sixth hour and all the way until the ninth hour, so for three hours, a darkness to where it seemed that the sun had failed working. This was an utter darkness, a darkest darkness of nighttime that lasted three hours as Jesus was on the cross. Like I said, the Bible is not clear as to the entire scope or the exact cause of this darkness, but one thing that we can say is definitely the cause of the darkness is that it was a miraculous work of God Darkness in the Old Testament and and places in the New Testament is often and regularly associated with God's power, God's might, uh, and in many cases, God's judgment and his wrath. We see darkness at various times, whether on Mount Sinai, whether when the Lord was dealing with the wicked. We see the Lord when he is moving in mighty ways, sending this darkness to cover the land. This darkness here in Luke chapter 23, I would argue, was a darkness that represented the wrath of God being poured out for sin. That in this moment, as Jesus Christ was on the cross, that God's wrath converged in this place, in this moment, in this person, Jesus Christ on the cross, and in that moment, there was utter and terrible and frightening darkness. Along with that, the other gospels tell us that there was earthquakes, shaking rocks, splitting the earth, opening up even dead people coming back to life out of the grave. This was an amazing scene that we have here. And I've said it the past few weeks, and I'm going to keep emphasizing it today, that this scene, this darkness, this wrath that was being poured out on Christ was being poured out because of our sin. It was our sin upon Christ that brought this wrath upon him. It was our sin that caused Christ to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And brought utter darkness in this moment. But the darkness was not the only miraculous event that happens in this 
moment, but we see also in the second half of verse 55, or 45, excuse me, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Of all the miraculous things that happened in the, in the cross, this to me is one of the most exciting and one of the most amazing. That the veil in the temple was torn in two. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of the temple, there was, there was various layers of, of places in which people could go into the temple. There were places that the Gentiles could go. There was the court of Gentiles. Then the Jews could go a little bit further than that. Then those who were a little bit more righteous, maybe the, the priests were able to go in a little bit farther than that into what's called the holy place. But then beyond the holy place, there was what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in that place was the Ark of the Covenant and where the presence of God resided. And there was only one person that went into that place and only one time a year, and that was the great high priest, who after making various purifications to make sure that he was ready and right and to enter into this place, went in once a year to make sacrifices. And he would go through this veil, this curtain, into the Holy of Holies. This veil then, the curtain, is what separated the presence of God from the presence of sinful men. In fact, it was uh, such an important thing when the high priest would go in once a year that he be right before the Lord before he entered, that if the high priest were to enter and to have not appropriately prepared himself, his heart, and done the proper cleansing uh, rites and rituals, that he would have died instantly. The very presence of God stood behind this veil. And here in our text today, this curtain, this veil was torn into from top to bottom. This veil would have likely been the thickness of about a human hand. Not some thin little piece of paper, not the curtains that we have on our, uh, on our windows at home, but, uh, but finely woven curtains out of the finest of materials to where this thing was not easily going to be torn. This was no act of nature. This was no accident by the priest that tore this curtain. It was an act of God alone to take the veil, the barrier that stood between God and man, and cut it in half from top to bottom. What's amazing too is that as this veil was torn in two, during this time, it was likely the very time when the priest would have been in the temple offering up the Passover lamb. That in this time, as the Passover lambs, these animals, these creatures that represent the true Passover lamb are being sacrificed in the temple, the true Passover lamb was sacrificed on the cross. And in that moment, these priests, everyone there in the temple witnessed as the veil from top to bottom in the temple was torn into and, and the presence of God was exposed and opened up to sinful men. I think there's a few things. There's at least two things I think represented in the, the curtain, the veil being torn into. I think first of all, what we see is we see the abolishment of the old covenant and the sacrificial system. Jesus had already said that the, the temple would be torn down, that it would be destroyed. And, and I think when saying this, he, he means not just the temple itself, but the old system. The sacrificial system was going to be done away with. It was going to be destroyed. And I see that this, that this veil being torn in two, I see as, as the first crack in this system as it began to crumble, as it began to be done away with. That no longer were sacrifices of animals, of goats, of bulls, of doves, needing to be made, but the final and ultimate sacrifice had been made, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in his sacrifice had done what none of those other sacrifices had done, done what that, 
lamb being sacrificed on the Passover could not have done, but he actually brought reconciliation between God and man. That is the second thing accomplished in the, uh, the tearing of the curtain of the veil, is that access to God's presence was granted to sinful people. This is the work of reconciliation. If you were at our systematic theology class this last week when we talked about the atonement, you'll know that one of the main themes, one of the key aspects that happened in the atonement was that reconciliation happened between God and man. This word reconciliation, it might not be super well-known or regularly used in our context, but I think we can all maybe understand in the context maybe of a marriage or of relationships that are broken, that are messed up, where there is, uh, there is a chasm between uh, two people, where there is maybe angerness, bitterness, uh, that is causing a rift in this relationship. And when that, uh, that relationship is restored, the, the chasm is, is breached, that there is reconciliation, maybe reconciliation between uh, a husband and wife when they have been uh, having issues, when they have been uh, struggling, or reconciliation between uh, friends who have had a falling out. The reconciliation that God brings through Jesus Christ is even greater than that because the chasm between us and God was so enormously vast. Unlike any marriage that has ever been broken, unlike any friendship that has ever been lost, the chasm between us and God was the chasm between wicked, sinful, wretched people who had rebelled against their creator who was a holy and is a righteous and perfect God and therefore, the reconciliation that is brought in Christ Jesus is far greater than anything we have ever seen before. That we, sinful human beings, now have access into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. We no longer need some great high priest to go and, and enter into the curtain on our behalf where we have Jesus Christ, the better, the new, the true high priest who, has, who is mediating on our behalf now, providing reconciliation between us and God. This happened in this moment. As the wrath of God is poured out upon Christ, reconciliation is made possible. We see going on in verse 46, this is the, uh, the third uh, sign of the new covenant, the third uh, thing that happens, the miraculous thing that Jesus, while he, was, he is on the cross in verse 46, cries out and says, says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is, probably carries more significance than we might realize when we first read these words of Jesus. These words that Jesus says here is actually a quote. He is quoting Psalm 31, uh, verse 5, the Psalm of David, where David, uh, crying out to the Lord, was crying out, uh, for the Lord to save him from death. He was crying out for the Lord to protect him, to care for him, to look after him. He was crying out in trust that the Lord would look after him and save him from his enemies. Here, Jesus uh, prays that prayer. This was also actually a relatively common prayer for pious Jews to pray before they would go to bed each night. They would pray, into your hands I commend my spirit. It was a relatively common prayer, but... The way Jesus prayed this prayer was far different and far greater than the way David prayed this prayer and far different and far greater than the way pious Jews would pray this prayer. For there are a few important distinctions. Number one, Jesus, when he prays this prayer, does not pray, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. But what does he pray? Father, 
into your hands I commit my spirit. Just a, a, a few moments earlier, as Jesus is bearing the full wrath of God, he does not call him Father. We see a picture of this fellowship between Christ and God the Father broken, between God the Father and God the Son. The fellowship is removed, and Jesus merely says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The unity, the fellowship between Father and Son that Christ has with God the Father is gone, but now we see that the work has been accomplished, reconciliation has been made, the wrath of God has been taken, and that relationship is again restored. Jesus again calling, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Something Jews would have never been so bold as to say. We see also that when Jesus prays this prayer, unlike David, Jesus prays this prayer not for the Lord to save him from death, but rather trusting that the Lord in his death as he commits up his spirit will do the work of of redemption through his death. It is still a prayer of trust. It is still a trust that Jesus has before God the Father, but not one that he would keep him from death for Jesus knows full well that the death is coming. Indeed, he lays down his life as John says, it was not taken from him. In this picture, as we see the last words ever spoken by Jesus, what we see demonstrated in these words is that Jesus has strength and control and power through this whole situation. For Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Here in this moment before he dies, this would have been a shock to the people who were there. Certainly it was to the centurion. Because Jesus had endured all this, everything that I walked us through last week of the pain, the suffering, the anguish of Jesus, most men as they are hanging on the cross about to die have no energy left to do anything. Any energy they have is spent lifting themselves up for one more breath, but they are completely and utterly exhausted before they die. That way they can barely say a word. Yet Jesus in this moment has the strength, the power, the authority to not just say these words, but to cry them out with a loud voice, with power, with authority, as he is not just killed, but as he lays down his life willingly. Now that we've seen these signs, these amazing events inaugurating the new covenant and and representing reconciliation, I want us to consider and turn our attention to some of the first indications of the success of Jesus' work after his death. Point number two, indication of a coming harvest. In verses 47 through 49, we see various characters and the reaction to the scene. First of all, we see the Roman centurion, this leader of of the Roman army, this man who was here and and likely had been here through the entire scene as, as his group of men, as he was the one in charge of seeing the death of Jesus through, has just witnessed all of these events. And as... The Bible tells us at the beginning of this story was contributing to the mocking and to the scorn that Jesus took. And yet now we see this centurion reacting a very different way. What do we see in verse 47? Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. This man saw, this centurion saw that Jesus Christ was innocent. But not only that, The other gospels tell us that that he not only saw that he was innocent, but proclaims truly this was the son of God, the most innocent, the most righteous, the most holy. The impact of what this man had seen on the cross 
the work of the Holy Spirit and opening his eyes to the reality of Jesus Christ on the cross caused him to say these words, not only that, but caused repentance and caused faith to be born in this man's heart as we see that he was not only saying this, but he was praising God, glorifying God, other translations say. This Roman centurion in charge of Jesus' death is now glorifying God, recognizing him as the son. We see also the Jewish crowd and their reaction. We see that they were assembled here for this spectacle, the Gospel of Luke tells us. And indeed, they saw it as a spectacle. Many of them would come out to, to mock Jesus, to make fun of him. Some, maybe not even knowing who Jesus was, maybe not even participating in, in all of the uh, trials and everything leading up to this, but simply, we come out for crucifixions. We come out to make fun of these people, to bring on shame so that they know what they've done. They were here for the spectacle. And indeed, it was a spectacle to them at first, for they also, along with everyone else, were mocking, jeering, spitting on Christ, making fun of him. But what do we see now? We see a change in their countenance as we see in verse 48 that as they left and they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Where else have we seen people beating their breasts? We see it in the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, do we not, that Jesus tells? Where there is a tax collector and a Pharisee and both come down to pray and when the Pharisee prays, how does he pray? He lifts up his head, says, thank you, Lord, that I am righteous. Thank you that I am not like this tax collector. And how does the tax collector pray? He bows his head, not even able to lift his head to the sky, and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he does so as he does what? As he beats his breast. A recognition of the sorrow of his sin, the sorrow, the, the disappointment the guilt of what it is that has just taken place. And everyone in this place feels it. Well, maybe these people did not leave here converted. Maybe they were not Christians. Maybe some of them were. Maybe some of them weren't. Maybe none of them were. But I would argue that many of these people were probably some of the same people that when Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost, weeks later, were there in that moment and were many, some of the many who came to Christ because of his preaching. Hearing his witness to the cross and having seen it for themselves, the Holy Spirit is already beginning the work of softening their hearts and opening their eyes, even in this instant, instantaneously. And then finally, we see in verse 49, all the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is perhaps the saddest verse in, in these set of verses, that Jesus' acquaintances probably his disciples, certainly these women who had followed him, who were a part of his disciples who had followed him, stood at a distance, again reiterating the fact that they had all at this point abandoned Jesus. They had left him to be crucified. They had left him to his doom. And we see here them standing at a distance. And though we see them standing at a distance here, we know that something great is coming even for them, that they feel the weight of what happened. Because these are the people, Jesus' acquaintances, the women who followed him, Jesus' disciples are the very ones that the Lord is going to use to spread the gospel and to grow his church and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. All of these people we see, I would argue, are an indication of a coming harvest. That the gospel at this point is starting to spread. The match has been lit and the tinder is on fire. And this, this gospel, this kingdom of God is about to spread like nothing has ever before and take the world by storm. 
as phase one of the redemption has been accomplished. Point number three, we see as we get to verse 50 through 53, what I would call the Sanhedrin's best kept secret. For anyone in here who has lived in Evansville for a long time, maybe you've grown up in Evansville, um, especially if you're a little bit older than me, uh, may remember a little place called Honey Fluff Donuts. Has anyone in here heard of Honey Fluff Donuts? Yes. What is Honey Fluff? What was Honey Fluff's Donuts slogan? It was printed right on the top of the box. Evansville's best kept secret. Because really, a lot of people had no idea that this little donut shop existed. And and you will attest to this. If you went to Honey Fluff Donut, and if you'd been there before, you could see a cockroach crawl across the floor and still wait in that line and get your donuts from them. Is that a true statement? That's a true statement. They were that good. They truly were Evansville's best kept secret in that they were an amazing, amazing donut shop with amazing food, yet hardly anyone knew about this little donut shop. The same thing is true here of Joseph of Arimathea, that in the midst of this, uh, of this dark, terrible scene, this dark place, we see this man shining as a light of an example of the grace of God at work. We know that this man was named Joseph. We know that he was from Arimathea. We know that he was a part of the council of the Sanhedrin. We know that he was rich. That is about all that we know of this man. Very little else is told. Very, other, very few other details are given us of this man. And yet from what we know about this man, even though it's so little, we know some great things. We know that this man serves as a contrast to what we see in verse 49 of the acquaintances of Jesus, many of his disciples who had abandoned him and stood far off. Now this man, who as we see in our text and know from the other gospels as well, was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a part of the group that had crucified Jesus, that had, that had betrayed him, that had put forward a bunch of lies in order to get him condemned and crucified. We know that this is one, this is one thing we need to make clear, that he was not there for the time whenever Jesus was, uh, was put through this mock counsel, this trial, for we know that it was a unanimous vote, yet we see here that uh, this man Joseph did not consent to what they had done. So we don't know where he was at the time, but what we know is that he came back and was present for this very terrible scene. And in this moment, Joseph of Arimathea showed great courage, as the gospel writer John tells us, that he worked up the courage in order to go before Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. For this man, though he was a disciple of Christ, we know that he was one secretly. As he was a part of the Sanhedrin, he did not tell anyone that he was a follower of Christ for fear of what they might think, for fear of what they might do, for fear of persecution. Who knows what they might have done to this man? And yet he has decided that now is the time when he can no longer be silent, he can no longer stay in the shadows, but boldly comes forward to proclaim that this is my Savior. He comes forward and asks for the body of Jesus in an attempt to show just whatever honor he can to this man and lays him in the tomb that he had bought, his own family tomb, takes this body of Jesus, wraps it, cares for it, and puts it in his tomb. This man truly demonstrated his faith and his confidence in Jesus as he boldly came forward in this moment. There is a sense in which this man, Joseph, should bring us a great deal of hope. He should bring us a great deal of hope because we can see from this man that even in the darkest of places, even when it seems like there is no light, grace breaks through. 
the gospel finds a way. That even this man who was on the council that put Jesus on the cross, even there the Holy Spirit is at work. Even there grace is working in the life of this man. It is reminiscent of the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah is so depressed, when he is so sad, he's ready to give up. Why? Because he says, everyone has turned against the Lord and his prophet. They are all seeking to kill me. Every single one of them has turned over to the worship of idols and he's ready to give up and quit. But what does the Lord say? The Lord says, nope, not everyone. For indeed, I have 7,000 that I have kept and that, have, that are faithful to me and have refused to bow the knee to Baal. We are sometimes like Elijah, I think, where it's easy for us to see the darkness and think that there is no hope. I think sometimes we see that there is, uh, there is too much hardness of heart, there is too much darkness, that there's no hope in this place, that there's no hope in that place. But I would argue that that is not true, for indeed the question could be asked, where on earth can grace not extend? Nowhere. There's not a single place grace can't extend. Grace is extended into the heart of the Roman army, where this centurion now sees the Lord as glorifying God. It is extended into the Jewish people, where the people have left beating their breast, and we know that many of them are going to come to faith at Pentecost. Grace has even extended into the very heart of the group of people that, caused, that sent Jesus to the cross to be crucified. This is important for us to remember. I think one of the most practical ways when we can uh, be sometimes so discouraged, so down, is when we think about friends or family around us who don't know Christ, who don't know the gospel. And we can sometimes be tempted to think, there is no hope for this person. We can sometimes get frustrated. We can sometimes think, Lord, are you ever gonna save them? I can think of family members off the top of my head that I am so often discouraged into thinking that way about them. But I'm here to tell you that if the Lord can reach into the heart of the Sanhedrin and save those people, the Lord can save any of my family members and he can save any of my friends and any of your family members, any of your friends, whoever it might be, do not give up hope on any of them. Do not cease to tell them the good news of the gospel. Do not seek, cease to encourage them and to pray for them for there is always hope. The gospel can always make a way. There is no place that grace cannot extend. Finally, point number four. We see the Sabbath rest and the greater rest. In verses 54 through 56, we read this in these verses. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to, the, according to the commandment. The final verse of this chapter here, uh, the completion of this phase of Jesus' works, work concludes, on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. It concludes with Sabbath rest, this obedient to the commandment that the Lord has given of resting, of observing the Sabbath. I can only imagine how restful that Sabbath day really was for these women and for the disciples of Jesus. Probably not very. Probably was filled with sorrow, filled with anguish. Probably left them depressed and sad. It was probably very hard to find any rest in that moment. Yet they did in observance of what the Lord commanded. They observed the Sabbath. But I would also observe the faithfulness and the obedience of these women. That even as they recognize the significance of what's happened, they know that the Lord 
as commanded obedience, and they seek to obey and to observe the Sabbath. But there's something else that's beautiful here. There's a, there's a beautiful irony that can be seen in this verse, that as these women, along with the rest of the Jews, are faithfully observing the Sabbath, this day of rest, Jesus is, to provi- is about to provide the way necessary for us to enter into the Sabbath rest ultimately. He is providing a way in this moment not simply for us to have a physical rest from the labor and toil of life, but a spiritual rest from the labors and efforts that we so often put into pleasing God. That Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection serve as the means for us to have ultimate spiritual rest, not because we've done enough, but because Christ has done it all. In him we find rest. In him we see that we don't need to toil, we don't need to work any longer For in him we have been reconciled to God. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In Jesus Christ we have rest because the final and ultimate sacrifice has been made. No longer do we need to toil. No longer do we need to work. Yet the sad thing is that many people instead of resting in Christ, instead of finding him as their Sabbath rest, put themselves under a a new version of the old covenant. Why is that? Why is it that people so often revert back to some sort of works-based righteousness, some sort of system where I have to do this or do that in order to please God? I would argue largely it's due to our pride. In a sense, we prefer a works-based system. We prefer the old covenant because for us, it makes it feel like it's somehow in our hands. We like to control. We like to think that we can play a role, that we can do something. Yet that's foolishness. The old covenant has been abolished. We no longer need to make sacrifices. We no longer need to be uh, doing all of those obedience, those observances to the law, nor do we need to be creating new laws for ourselves to observe in order to be pleasing before God. We simply need to rest in Christ and his finished work. He is our ultimate Sabbath rest in him. We leave this text in a scene of calm anticipation, I would say. For as us, we know what's coming next. We know what phase two holds. As the Jewish nation rests on the Sabbath, God is preparing to demonstrate his power, his authority, in the most dramatic way possible. But you'll have to come next week to hear that. For that is indeed the beginning of phase two. But I would argue this, as we conclude, I would argue that if anyone has heard the message of the cross and is still not a follower of Christ, then it is because they are understanding the message of the cross wrongly. To them I would plead, look again. For indeed, everyone who looked at the cross, who was there in that moment, who saw what happened to Jesus, the innocent Savior, and understood it rightly, they could not help but be changed. They could not help but be affected by the immediate work of Christ's redemption, his work, his atonement on the cross. The centurion saw it rightly. He saw everything that went down, and even though he started that uh, process mocking and jeering, jeering Jesus, brutalizing him, He ended in that process by glorifying God, recognizing, claiming, witnessing to Jesus as the Son of God. Be like the centurion. If you don't understand, look again at the cross of Christ. Read it again in Luke. Read it again in Matthew. Read it again in John. Read it again in Mark. 
see the work that God has done on our behalf.